We're gonna switch up the format a little on this one. We're going to start today with a micro lecture from Dr. Mary Clements on attachment theory, which will set up nicely for a conversation with Dr. Adamson Coe, a theologian, which you'll hear in the second part of the episode. Let's jump right in. Last week before I left for the Pacific Northwest, I overheard a dinner conversation um, in which one of, uh, one of you placed psychology in the category of uh, general revelation, that we might be able to think about insights from psychology as falling into this general category of general re revelation. And I don't actually have any particular qualms about that characterization, um, but it did, I admit that it did sort of channelize the way I thought about preparing for this talk and thinking about this topic, which is relationships and what we learn about God from them. If you will, relationships can be seen both as general revelation, which I'll explain a great deal about in just a moment, and as specific revelation as God describes himself in relationship to us in Scripture. As um, Oliver noted, my training is as a clinical psychologist. I am specifically in the area of uh, psychological science that we would refer to as developmental psychopathology. So it, what I mean by that is we work really hard to understand normal functioning in order to have a foil against to understand difficult or disordered functioning. Similarly, disordered functioning tells us something about normative or healthy or good functioning. I had, in addition to my PhD in clinical psychology, I completed what my school called a tool, and uh, most schools would call a minor, in both developmental psych psychology and in quantitative psychology, which means that my particular interests are in identifying and understanding and quantifying the development of human behavior and um, its dysfunctions. As um, Oliver also mentioned, I'm particularly interested in the effects of interparental conflict on family members, particularly on children, and in the prediction and prevention of relationship distress and divorce. This means that I have studied, observed, intervened in some truly miserable family situations. Boldy, in 1969 and 1988, um, published two really seminal works on books on attachment that really summarized a lot of his research with children in um, post-war Europe, England. And he described attachment as an enduring emotional bond, and for him it was particularly with the mother. And Bowlby believed that within the first year for most children, but certainly within the first two to three years, a strong attachment bond needed to be formed with the primary caregiver, the mom in his words, or the child would never be able to form the appropriate emotional attachment bonds to other individuals. So Bowlby, drawing from these, argued that humans were born with an environmental, environmentally, evolutionarily adaptive um, innate drive towards attachment, and that this attachment really must be established by toddlerhood. Okay, this is a brilliant theory. Mary Ainsworth, however, is the one who developed the paradigm that was used to measure and to categorize attachment. The strange situation is her design, and it is a series of specific interaction segments involving the infant, the caregiver, again, usually the mother, and a researcher who is a stranger to the infant, okay? This particular situation, experimental paradigm, has eight distinct segments, at least um, about three minutes long. I'm gonna show you snippets of those, obviously not the whole thing, because, you know, there's other things you wanna do today. And First, what happens is the mom and the baby are brought into an attractive playroom that has cool toys 
uh, cool age-appropriate toys. The researcher then leaves. That's segment one. Parent then sits down and the child plays. Um, ideally, the, using the mom as a secure base, which I'll say more about in a moment, to explore the room, to be able to check out this novel toys and so on and so forth. Then the researcher comes in and sits down and talks to the mom. This is stage three. And one of the things that's looked at is how does the child respond? Are they fearful of this researcher coming in? Is it okay? Ideally, you'd want the, the child not to be overly fearful, but to really sort of reference the parent. Is this okay? Is this safe? Is this whatever? Then the mom leaves and leaves the child alone with the stranger. Sometimes children are distressed. Sometimes they're not. You'll see that in just a moment. Then the stranger leaves and the mom returns. And this is the first reunion. And this is actually a really important time to see what, how does a child respond to the mom coming back. This tells us a great deal about what children understand about their relationship with their parent. Um, you'll see that there's a range of responses from no response at all, oh, you came back, whatever, to being distressed and being comforted by the mom, to being distressed and not being able to be comforted. Um, so there's a whole range of those kinds of responses. Then the parent leaves, and the child's now all alone in the room. Um, typically, we do see some distress in there for children who are securely attached. And then the researcher comes back in, and the researcher tries to comfort the child. Okay. Mm -hmm. Finally, in the eighth segment, the mom returns and is able and comforts the child. Okay. This is a weird thing, right? A totally weird thing. But this is how you get to see by looking at what the child does in terms of seeking and maintaining or avoiding or resisting proximity to and comfort from the mom, you can learn a lot about what that relationship is like and what the history of that relationship has been like. Happily, most children are what we would call securely attached. Okay, so about 70% of um, babies evidence some distress on separation. Um, they avoid the stranger when they're alone with the stranger, but are relatively friendly towards the stranger when the mom's there. They're happy when the mom comes back, and they are able to be comforted relatively quickly by the mom. They roam the room freely, but they visually reference or come back to and touch base with the mom every now and then, um, using her then as a secure base, a, a place from which it is safe and okay to explore their surroundings and to interact with their surroundings. Somewhere between 10 and 15% of children, however, fall into the category of resistant or anxious um, ambivalent attachment has both names, just to be confusing. We like to do that in psychology. We change names all the time. It's, it's really not fun. Those children show intense distress on separation. Um, they're, they're fearful of the stranger. They, um, when the mom comes back, they approach her, but they reject contact. They won't really be comforted, um, but they stay in very close proximity. So there's this ambivalence. I want to get close to you, but I don't really trust you. I need you to be really right here, but I'm not sure you're really going to meet my needs. The next category is avoidant. And again, about 10 to 15% of infants show this. They show no real particular interest when the mom leaves. It's like, oh, okay, whatever. They play with the stranger as easily as they do with the mom. They ignore the mom when she returns. And both the mom and the stranger, if the child shows any distress, comfort the child equally well. And um, these individuals typically have difficulty in forming close relationships. Um, they tend to be a little dismissive or avoidant of close relationships as they grow. A fourth category was added later because uh, people just don't like to be pigeonholed, okay? Um, I had a, a boss when I was at Penn State who 
said, no, we don't do rocket scientists. We don't do rocket science because, in fact, rocket science is much more predictable. People are not predictable. You put two atoms of hydrogen and an atom of oxygen together under the right conditions, you will get water every single time. Okay? It's not necessarily the case for people. People have agency and free will and resilience and all sorts of things that are um, God-given that make my job a lot harder. Okay? Because why is it that some kids do okay and some kids don't in the same apparent situation? So a fourth category had to be added later because there are some children who don't fall into any of these categories, but rather are something that's called disorganized. And that is they may do some of all these things. So they may ignore the mom sometimes and be incredibly clingy other times. They may respond with distress sometimes and not with other times. Typically, um, these these children in the most extreme cases actually show relief when the mom leaves. They are warm to the stranger but respond really kind of with fear or negativity when the mom comes back, and the stranger seems to comfort the child better than the mom. Not surprisingly, this particular pattern of attachment is most prominent in um, children who have been abused. Well, children whose parents were responsive to their needs and distress in the past have learned that their mother provides a safe and secure base from which they can explore the world and interact with it. Strangers aren't frightening when mom's around. They take their cues from mom. If mom's not worried, I don't need to be worried. Um, And the child has the freedom to play with the toys, to explore the surroundings, to interact with their world in a very free and normal and healthy way. On the other hand, when the attachment figure's not around, all bets are off and the child's distressed because there is, in fact, a need to have that base to return to, a need to be able to check in. Children whose parents are unreliable or inconsistent in responding to their children's needs and distress in the past learn that the world is an unsafe and scary place. People cannot be counted on. Um, And these infants demonstrate the last pattern you saw, a marked push-pull kind of reaction. They need, they deeply desire this connection, but they can't make use of it because they've learned that it's not consistent, that they can't count on it. They become very distressed when the mom leaves, but they're also not very comforted when she returns. These people also, as as adults, tend to have difficulties in relationships with other people, Um, romantic relationships, relationships with God, relationships with peers, and so on and so forth. They take that sort of prototype and play it forward. Children whose parents are dismissive or emotionally unavailable do the thing that we saw in the middle. Those children um, learn that parents will be unavailable in their response, and so they demonstrate sort of a premature independence. It's actually not normal for a child of that particular age not to reference, not to need the parent to be a secure base. It's actually not normal for them not to show some separation anxiety, some distress in the face of of an unfamiliar Um, stranger. Okay, all this is well and good, but why do we really care? I sort of alluded to it before. When a child is securely attached, that child forms what we call internal healthy working models or prototypes of the self, of others, of relationships. Others are seen to be trustworthy, the self is seen to be valuable, and they see themselves as effective agents in interacting with other people. This then forms the basis for successful and healthy interactions, not only with the primary attachment figure, but with other caregivers, siblings, peers, and later romantic partners. Bowlby himself believed that the primary attachment figure was always the mother, but subsequent research by Ainsworth and others has revealed the importance of attachment to others, both in childhood and adulthood. So for instance, 
they did some studies with moms who were this kind of inconsistent or who were this emotionally unavailable thing and found out that the kid didn't look as bad as they expected. Well, what was that about? There was somebody else in their world that they were securely attached to. In fact, by the time the child is a toddler, they typically have strong attachment relationships with up to five different people. So in addition to mom, it might be dad, it might be grandma, it might be sibling, it might be daycare worker. It might be any of a variety of different kinds of people. Um, Boldly thought it had to be the mom, but it doesn't look like it really does have to be the mom. Also, one is a magic number. One is a magic number because if you have a good attachment relationship with one individual, the child will actually be okay. Zero, that's rough. Those children are going to have some real difficulties moving forward. Um, so the, the fact that there are extended kin networks that some children can take advantage of, the fact that there are quality daycare situations, the fact that there are um, often multiple um, parent figures in a child's life actually serves a protective function for children. Relationships do carry forward. And in fact, Shaver and his colleagues um, found that attachment styles in adult romantic relationships roughly parallel in type and in proportion, i.e. with most being secure and smaller proportions being either resistant or avoidant. Most people are secure, and he found this even when he did a survey that was based through a local newspaper. Now, when you do a study through a local newspaper, you often get people who are looking for therapy, you know, for free therapy, um, who are looking to have... um, some, some view that they have validated. So you sometimes get people out on the extremes. But even when they did it that way, he found that most people had securely attached um, and smaller groups in, in the ambivalent and avoidant. Furthermore, there's research that suggests that person's attachment to God both echoes and serves protective functions. Um, that is, there are individuals who even in difficult personal situations have managed to form a secure attachment to God, likely perhaps through their experiences in church settings, their experiences with representatives of God, Sunday school teachers, um, preachers, so on and so forth, um, who provide evidence of there's a different way, there's a better way, there's something else that we can learn. Um, But often children echo in their attachment to God what they have experienced in their attachment to parents. No pressure, parents. In two studies, one that used a nationally representative sample, so they deliberately pulled people to reflect what the U.S. population looks like, and one that was more of a convenient sample, uh, Lehman, Hunter, Ferguson, Rott demonstrated that even when you controlled for people's view of God as either being wrathful or being forgiving, secure attachment to God actually predicted much better psychological functioning on the part of the individual. This is a finding that parallels our findings with attachment to parents, to primary caregivers. A secure attachment predicts all good things, and insecure attachments typically predict really negative things vis-a-vis individuals, both levels of internalizing disorders such as anxiety and depression, and also sort of interpersonal relationships that are more problematic on the aggressive or dismissive side. Um, Taken together, then, the research on attachment seems to indicate the importance of relationships to human beings and specifically the importance of the perception of a responsive, attuned relationship in which individuals experience a safe and secure base. Um, This has been examined, as I mentioned, both in parents but also in other caregivers, in siblings, and in God.
in relationships to God. And so attachment seems to be a really important building block for the formation of later relationships for individuals. And that is why I think that we can think about relationships as a form of revelation. Okay, you've just heard an abridged version of a micro lecture from Mary Clemens that was first delivered in seminar one of our Theopsych project. And if you wanna go deeper into this subject, you can take our course for free on our website called Human Relationships. There's a link in that course to a test to find out about your own attachment style, which usually talking about this stuff brings up for people. Uh, also in that course is a unit about the science of forgiveness, which is also really helpful and interesting. Now folks from the field of psychology of religion, Christian clinical psychologists, and more recently, theologians have really taken an interest in this subject of attachment theory. They've started looking into things like how could attachment theories overlap with religious belief and practice? Practice. How do those things relate? And the idea of attachment to God. Can we look at that in the same way? How much overlap is there between your attachment style inherited from childhood experiences and how you understand your relationship with God? Can we use attachment styles to understand traditional theological concepts like union with Christ or even maybe salvation? There's a theologian, Natalia Miranduk, who explores how human relationships might mediate God's love in a way that we could call salvific. You can find more from her on another episode of this podcast. But the conversation you're about to hear with Adamson Co. is about his investigation into the overlap between healthy attachment and the idea of union with Christ. Adamson Co. is professor of theology at California Baptist University. He's also a pastor and had a previous career as a lawyer. So he's got a broad range of interests and education, and we're grateful he joined us for our third Theopsych cohort to expand that knowledge base into the world of psychological science. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion, Director of Communication at Blueprint 1543. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Adam. I reread through your application and um, just the ideas that you were talking about in your application, I think is plenty to get other people's like gears turning. So okay. I feel encouraged. Yeah. So will you just t tell me, start by just introducing yourself, just saying what's your vocation? What uh, sort of research questions do you pursue? Right. And any way you want to answer that to just introduce who you are, and what you're all about. Yeah, wow, that's a big uh, <laughs> question. But, that's fine. Uh, so my name is Adam Coe. I am currently a professor of theology here at the California Baptist University. Prior to coming here to teach, I, for many years, uh, was a pastor. And even as I was teaching, uh, continued on with some pastoral responsibilities. It's only been lately that uh, I couldn't keep up with both. But pastor at heart. And so the way I relate to students here is definitely to impart to them the best theological knowledge, but I still see myself as a pastor to them. And so I always want to bring that pastoral touch. And I guess to that end, both as a former pastor, pastor at heart, a professor who has the best interests of my students' spiritual development in mind, 
my interest has always been in the area of sanctification, for lack of a better term, to cover this big area in, in theology and specifically applied theology. I want to take all that knowledge, theological understanding, and be able to channel it to the spiritual development of um, the people underneath me. And obviously, to do that, uh, I want to be as widely read, you know, very informed in terms of what's out there. And psychology definitely comes into that particular area and uh, an interest. And I've always wondered, you know, why is it that certain people grow and some people don't? What's the motivation? And so I figured psychology may have a lot to say. So God works, obviously, in many different ways, but we're creatures of God. And so to the extent that psychology has something to say to us about how uh, we're made, we're constructed, uh, coincides with our understanding of the way God created us. So I really am fascinated in that field. And that's, that's what drove me to theopsych. Yes, yes, that's so good. Adam, I hope you don't mind if I ask you real quick, but on your CV, I noticed that you did your undergrad in, was it political science? Yes. And then you went to law school as well. Went Is that law true? Law school, yes. So I was a practicing attorney prior to becoming a pastor and then a professor. So I guess uh, on a broader interest level, political involvement, the Christian role in it. And really all that's happening nowadays is really wow. uh, a very fruitful area of my interests and research. Um, yeah, you've got a, a wide base of knowledge. Oh, and well, thank you. Thank so you. glad that you've taken an interest in the human sciences as well. well that's super fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you've seemed to, uh, I noticed in your application, you were kind of ready to answer the response of um, some areas of, the Christian community are concerned about, about seeking out the scientific community, the behavioral sciences for answers about what a human is and does and is like, um, that that somehow infringes on the authority of theology, of scripture, of God. Um, and you sort of, uh, you, you quoted Calvin, but if you could just say a little something about that, about why you don't see a problem or how you see the boundary lines uh, interacting, however you want to respond to that. Mm -hmm. So uh, the area that when I applied this uh, theopsych that I said I wanted to look more into is in the area of attachment theory. So I was fascinated by how I was reading one time how David Bowie, this wild and crazy man of, of rock, said he changed. And I thought, is it a book? Is it a person? Is it some encounter? But really, the very simple thing he said eventually was because of the birth of his daughter. And that fascinated me. And as I read that article, they referenced the idea of attachment. And so often you would think uh, attachment theory works, you know, the child to the parent. But in this case, it worked the other way around. And so that really made me uh, want to explore that. So as I think about it now, attachment theory in many ways coincides, you know, in terms of its transformative power theologically has to do or has a lot of connection to, to the idea of union with Christ. At least that's the one that I wanted to, to make the correlation in. And so uh, in terms of how each discipline complements the other, 
I really think this is a classic case where you really do see the same idea reflected on both disciplines, um, how relationship in, in the final analysis can have that transformative effect on a person, be it parent-child, or in this case, God-man. And, and, and relationally, there's a lot of similarities, actually. So that really fascinated me, and, and really, Theopsych has provided a lot of information, a lot of food for thought. And so that's an area that uh, I am still definitely digging deep into, and I'm very grateful for what Theopsych has provided. Excellent. Do you think you could just explain what you mean when you talk about union with Christ? Is that, are you referring more to spiritual reality or to a a relationship? Or can you just explain the doctrine a little bit as you're using it? Yeah. So doctrinally, uh, Mm -hmm. super abstract um, Mm -hmm. in so many words uh, is that when we come to faith in Christ, we're brought together in him, right? We we become a part of him. Now, there's a lot of explanation of how that's so, but I think it really can be reduced to the idea of relationship, the bond that's created between you and Christ. You know, not only bring the two of you together, but uh, really has the transformative effect. And that to me essentially is the union with Christ that I'm referring to. And that to me also has a lot of similarity and correlation to attachment theory, at least on a broader analogical uh, Yeah, level. right. So do you think you could explain what you've learned so far about um, mm-hmm. attachment, in particular, a healthy attachment, what that might look like so that we could understand the analogy a little bit more? So uh, an, uh, a healthy anal- uh, analogy or uh, attachment, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, is, of course, where the child is properly formed because the child it receives proper nurture from uh, the parent in, in every, each and every stage of, of that child's life. And having gone through that, now comes complete or, or uh, is properly formed and able then actually to then take on the role of the parent for another. And, and so that, in a sense, is really attachment uh, come full circle. Obviously, in life, we don't all uh, encounter that. And, you know, we may miss a little bit of here and there. And from a uh, psychological point of view uh, or developmental point of view, it is in revisiting this idea that sometimes we can find wholeness you know, as we look at attachment in, in seeing how we can help a person become whole. Um, I think theologically, uh, this is, of course, pure psychology. You know, you don't bring in the God element. But I think as we take that concept into theology, it can stay as it is. But then we add the element of, this, of the spiritual that obviously it's more than just the parent-child relationship, there's more, and there's that added level of the, the spiritual, and, and wholeness comes as not only do we have a proper attachment with our parents and, and make up for whatever's missing, but also attachment with God uh, makes uh, for the, the complete wholeness that we as, as um, human beings experience in life. And, and so my goal is not so much to get into the territory of the psychologists. They're doing a good job, 
But uh, my goal is to take what's there and maybe add that theological level, theological treatment uh, to, as it were, complete the, um, the goal that the attachment theory is trying to accomplish in bringing about wholeness in the lives of people. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was learning about attachment theory, it doesn't look sort of like the spectrum of like needing the parent all the time. It's like the healthiest form of attachment gives you the ability to be a stable, independent person, but, but, uh, but, but excited when your mother returns sad when you see her go, but able to regulate your emotions and confidently proceed with whatever activities you're doing. Like that's an attachment, a healthy attachment style with a child that knows that their caretaker, their mother, their father, both cares for them, loves them, all those all those things. So that's interesting to map that onto a relationship with God. That's right. Because the reality is, is as you grow, you don't always develop that healthy attachment. What now? Right. And this right. is where God comes in to make mm-hmm. up for whatever may not have happened in your mm-hmm. development. It's never too late, I guess, to mm-hmm. really find that wholeness that you may not have gotten through your developments uh, Definitely. Do you think there's some application that I, you've sort of alluded to it though, for spiritual practice or personal piety mm-hmm. and how to nurture yeah. the secure attachment with God, quote unquote, through through Christian living and practice? Or what are your thoughts on that area? Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a, it's a rich field. So much to be said. Uh, one thing I would say definitely is from a Christian point of view, and even from really evangelistic, we need to return to the gospel. If the gospel is God's full expression of his love, this is where you find love, the love of God to which you find attachment, right, to him, to which you can draw fullness of love that you may not have received, you may not have properly been developed in. And so we need to go back. So what I would say is this, just like a child, in a sense, it, you know, in order to become whole for whatever lack of attachment he or she may have gotten, is to return to that very idea and to to draw, as it were, from the love of the parent um, to then be whole. I would say, you know, believers and even non, if you want to find that true wholeness now uh, as an adult, you know, you need to go back, uh, you need to go to the gospel and draw your strength and your love uh, from. So it's not a matter of going out there and doing some getting busy. I really think it's it's a matter of a, like a sponge absorbing onto yourself, onto your soul, if I may put it that way, uh, the love of God that we know is there. Maybe we just sort of pass by or we don't really take the time to really ingrain, as it were, within us. Um, uh, we need to do more of that, you know, for lack of a better term, meditate on on. On, on the love of God and allow it to truly sip into our very being. And as we do, we find attachment, I really think, to, to, to God and find the wholeness. 
Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I thought when I, because I went to Fuller to get my master's in theology, and I was concerned, you sort of expressed in some of what you wrote for your application going into that, that I was like, I'm going to need to double down on my my quiet time in order to, because I thought I was just going to be going into seminary and learning about all these ideas about God. And I, I was aware of that, sometimes that separation between just thinking about God and lacking that relating to God, you know, through prayer, meditation, those types of things. But actually Fuller was pretty good about that, like in their, in their classes, incorporating some sort of practices or meditations or, or contemplations. They were, they were sort of aware of needing, needing both. And I think that you you sort of alluded in something you wrote in your application to having this pastoral heart and wanting to bridge the academic with the church and sh- show the church kind of take the best of what's going on in the academic world and and bring it to the church. Would you say that's part of what you're hoping to do with yeah, some of this mo- kind of material? Yeah, most definitely. I, I really think that, you know, sometimes even the idea of spending more time, um, quiet time, or or prayer, or whatever. Sometimes it it really may just become like, oh, you just have to do it, and you lose because you don't have the explanatory power that that can help. Right? If you can explain or give more rationale for why this is not just a matter of something you have to do, but provide the explanation. It, having that richness of understanding gives you uh, the motivation to yeah. uh, to do what you have been told, but it's now no longer because you've been told, but because now you understand mm-hmm. how useful this truly is in your spiritual development and, and mm-hmm. making up for what may be lacking in your life. Right. I'm deeping, deepening an attachment with God. Yeah. The idea of union with Christ, which is, you know, very biblical mm-hmm. and um, responding to some of the brokenness and the healing that may need to take place from your, you know, earth, earthly parents that's right. and whatnot. So yeah. that's, that's very, very practical. Very good. Well, great. Um, what else was on my list to ask you about? You brought up the work of Pamela King, Pamela Epstein mm-hmm. King quite a bit. Yes. Do you think you could talk about your engagement with her work and the reciprocating yeah. yeah, well, now let me just say, first of all, I am a novice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she has done the wonderful job of bridging psychology and theology. So I am a learner. I sit and learn in terms of how she integrated the two, and I'm fascinated. Uh, now, I noticed she really relied upon Catherine Tanner uh, in, in her work. And to that extent, I appreciate it. Well, so what she did essentially was to take the the whole idea of our of union with Christ to make it applicable to the issue of our spiritual lack. And and what I appreciated is taking the idea of attachment and applying it in a theological context. So I'm not uh, an authority on Pamela King. I'm still learning. Yeah. So. No, that's fine. She's great. And she spoke at our second seminar and I should actually I miss that. And I you missed that one, but um, we, I should send you those recordings because you'd probably find it really interesting and helpful. But yeah, you talk about the one other theological concept you bring up quite a bit is the Imago Dei. So you're talking about the image of God, but it, it's the same as what we've been talking about, right? Like the Imago Dei is something that we all have, but in a partial or broken or incomplete way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so do you see 
what we're talking about, this growing in attachment to God, union with Christ as a work of restoration of, of that aspect of our humanity as well? Oh, no, no, no question about it. I mean, you know, the Imago Dei, of course, as you rightly uh, alluded to, has been distorted because of the fall. I mean, just the very idea, for instance, of being kicked out of Eden, we no longer have that uh, walking with God in the cool of the of the day sort of experience. Now, that's not to say it's not replicable uh, on this side of Eden, but it really does mean we no longer have the, the easy access that we used to have. And so all the more, you know, we yearn for it and we need to be conscious of it. And 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 becoming a Christian, coming to the gospel is really uh, a recovery in the sense that now through Christ, through union with him, we can ex- uh, experience, we can have the attachment, if you will, that mankind has always had back in, mm. in Eden. So the restoration of the Imago Dei in many ways is really like a, a proper, a proper uh, redevelopment of the person through, through attachment, proper attachment with God, if you will. How would you respond sort of maybe pastorally to someone who that idea of like experiencing the love of God? So, so throughout our Christian life and our relationship with God, we might have times where we feel certain and sometimes when we're doubting or sometimes when we actually feel we're experiencing the love of God quite a bit and then long periods of time when maybe we do not. How would you respond to someone who found themselves in that long period of this is I'm supposed to think of this as true, but I'm not it's not matching my experience. What would you Yeah. Well oftentimes when you don't experience the love of God, well there are many reasons obviously. Mm You know, if your life is undergoing a great deal of suffering, for instance, it's easy to think God no longer cares. Or if your life is becoming sort of blasé and and you, you know routine, you you lose the the sensation of being alive. Um, so mm. I think what I would say is. Again, I would say go back to the gospel and, you know, the gospel brings us back to the meta-narrative, the storyline of the Bible. In in a sense, really, you know, one way to to experience the love of God is to enter, re-enter into the biblical narrative wherein the love of God is found, is best expressed. And this is where we go back and we understand um, how humanity, how we came to be where we are. So it's creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And, and we set our life, our personal life story, in light of that bigger, bigger meta-narrative, right? We place it in there instead mm-hmm. of taking it out and say, now, where am I? Because the moment you take your, your personal life story out of that big meta-narrative, then you really are at a loss because what is this story that I'm living in, right? Um, yeah. If you remember to place it back into that bigger meta narrative, even though you're undergoing difficulty, even though you're, you're feeling, you know, blasé routine, but you're you're reminded that this is the bigger meta narrative that you belong to, and you begin to find meaning and purpose. And in the midst of that, 
you begin to once again be reminded how God's expressed his love to you within that meta narrative. I hope that's a no, that's really good. And that's actually like psychologically, it makes sense too, because Pam King actually in that book quite a bit talks about how important purpose is to thriving. So if you know your purpose, if you know your telos, what you're, <laughs> what you're for, she spends a lot of time talking about that um, as well, then it, it, it increases your thriving. You just end up living life in a more full way and flourishing. And so remembering your place and sort of God's big story of history. Yeah. Um, it's great advice. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.